Take your Bibles, please, and let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. Chapter 22. And like we were this morning with 1 Corinthians at Sunday school, we will be looking at verses 6 through the end of the chapter, thus finishing our little, I I hesitate to say whirlwind journey through Revelation, since it took two calendar years, over two calendar years to get here, but Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 6, let me pray before we begin, and then we'll read the passage and then dig in. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to the end of this great book, and as we come to the end of the last book in the Bible, Lord, I pray that the words that end this book will be the words on our hearts. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come now. And uh, Lord, we hasten for your return as we just sung in one of the songs, Oh, come Emmanuel, while that's certainly being sung for the as, uh, exiles of Israel, it is also our song as well as we, your church, in a sense, is in exile in this world. We are pilgrims, Lord. This world is not our home, and we, we long for our home. We long for Christ to return and make things right and bring the new heavens and the new earth down to earth and so that we who are in Christ can enjoy the bliss of being with our God for all eternity. Until then, Lord, we pray that you will strengthen us in our pilgrim journey, that you will fortify us, that you will help us to stand firm and to be on watch. That you will forgive us our sins, O Lord, and keep us from sin. And that you will continue to work your sanctification in our hearts. We pray for those who are lost and in need of the gospel, Lord, that the gospel will go forth to them, that we as ourselves will be witnesses to these souls who are in darkness, that we will be that light to them, that we will show them the love of Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who are not able to be here, whether they be traveling home. We think of the Huffmans, Fred and Lori, who are not here with us as they're driving back from Branson, and others who are normally here for these lessons as well. We pray, Lord, that you watch over them as as well. Now, Lord, bless our time in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. 
But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's it. The end of Revelation. Good night. No, I'm just kidding. You don't need me to explain these things, right? No, just kidding. That is the end of the book of Revelation. So there we are. There you have it. We are done with this book. Now, just a brief recap on what we saw last time. Last time we looked at chapter 21 through chapter 22, or chapter 21, verse 22, through chapter 22, verse 5, uh, in, a, in a section we call Paradise Restored. And really, Paradise Restored kind of begins with chapter 21, verse 9, but we took it in, in two parts. But in that vision, you see the glory of the new Jerusalem, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the glory of the new creation. As we are told, many things that are in the new creation and many things that are not in the new creation. And the things that are in the new creation are the fact that you have God is there. You have the fact that it's always day, that there's no night, that there's no light to shine because God and the Lamb are there. There's no temple. Why? Because God and the Lamb are dwelling there with His people. There's no evil there. But what you do have is you have the tree of life is there. The tree of life that was uh, lost when Adam lost, uh, when Adam sinned in the garden. Uh, the garden was, was sealed. The garden was barred to any human entry. And with, it, and with that was the tree of life. The tree of life was, was removed from, uh, from humanity. It was taken away. Paradise was lost. But here you see paradise not just restored back to its old way, but um, much better. This is much better because this is the new creation, right? You had the old creation, that has passed away. Now you have the new creation. So you have the tree of life. You have the waters of life. You have the Lord there. And, and we will dwell with him forever. That is, that is really sort of the climax, if you will, of the book. This idea of paradise restored. Everything that has been leading up to in this book has been leading to that moment where God will dwell with his people forever. Where we will be with him and he will be our God and everything will be blissful. I mean, I, I can't, you know, words in a way kind of pale to really describe the reality that we have here. And even the vision that we have here that John receives pales in comparison to the reality that will be true when these things occur. 
But everything that is of this old age, everything that, that marks this fading age, will be gone. And that's the thing that we need to take away from this. There will be no evil, there will be no sorrow, there will be no death, no sin, none of those things, because those things have passed away. And all that's left is God with his people forever in the new creation. So really then what we have here, starting in verse 6 to the end of the chapter, is a postscript, is a, is a, is a conclusion and it's, it's exhortations. You've got exhortations in there to, to watch and be watchful. You've got um, warnings, really. I mean, the, the passage is really sort of uh, punctuated with this idea that the, that the Lord is coming quickly, that things are happening soon, that these things must take place very, very soon, quickly. Uh, that, that, that idea of quickly is in this passage at least five times. And the word quickly itself is in here three times. So there, the idea is that this is not something that is going to take some time. Okay? This is something that, from God's perspective, is going to happen soon, quickly. And as such, we, the church, need to be ready. That's the, really the main thrust of this last section here as he concludes. Jesus is coming quickly, and we, the church, must be ready for his return. Just as we saw at the end of 1 Corinthians where Paul exhorts the church to watch, stand firm in the faith, be strong, be brave. It's, the same thing can be said here. Except now coming from the words of the, the mouth of Jesus, you have himself telling you, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready for his return. So the passage, really, I separated, I broke it down into four parts. And then you've got, I got it like a little, my own epilogue, if you will, kind of concluding the book of Revelation. So the first part here in verses 6 through 11 is, the time is near. The time is near. And we see words here that this, past, this section begins with, the conclusion of Revelation. It begins with words we've seen before where... Here, this is a, uh, more than likely the angel that had been revealing these images to John, these visions. The angel says to John, these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. We saw this in chapter 19, verse 9, where uh, John is told to write, blessed are those uh, who, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think I have the wrong verse there. Nope. Um, sorry, I just didn't keep, I need to continue reading. And then he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. We saw it again in chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, he who sat on the throne, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. So you get this notion that the angel's telling John, look, write these things down, keep these things down. These are faithful and true words. Why are they faithful and true? Because they come from a God who is faithful and true. So we can take his words to heart. These, will, these, these are things that will happen. These are faithful and true words. And it not only applies to what we see here in this passage, it really applies to the entire book of Revelation. This is a revelation given to John near the end of the first century while he's in exile in the Isle of Patmos to bring hope to the church. 
So what, what could be of more hope to a, a struggling church, a church under persecution, a church in danger of compromise from within, persecutions without, a church that's struggling to maintain doctrinal purity? When you think, consider all the churches that we saw in the letters in chapters 2 and 3, all those things that they're struggling with, what could be more important for the church than to hear faithful and true words from your God about the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, not only these words in verses 6 through 21, but the whole book of Revelation. So he says, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets. That's an interesting turn of phrase there. The Lord God of the holy prophets. Some other versions might say the spirits of the prophets. If you have an ESV, it probably says the spirits of the prophets. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Basically what we're saying here when he says the God of the holy prophets is saying that the the same Lord, the same God who inspired the prophets, who gave the prophets words to speak to the people in the Old Testament, is the same one who is sending his angel to John to write these things. It's all coming from the same source. And that source is our Lord God Almighty. And he's giving these words to John so that he can tell the churches the things that must shortly take place. That word there, must, it's a, it's a small Greek word, uh, day, 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 or day. Uh, it, it means that, basically it speaks of necessity, a divine necessity. It's the same word when Jesus is about to take the shortcut from uh, Judea back to Galilee in John chapter 4, and he says, I must go through Samaria, right? I have to. I have a divine appointment in Samaria. He has to go and speak with that woman at the well. That was a divine appointment by God. I must go there because I have a lost sheep. I have other lost sheep in Samaria. I must go there and witness to them. So instead of doing what a normal Jew would do, which was take the long way around to go from one end to the other because they wanted to avoid Samaria, Jesus goes into Samaria. He must go there. You see that word a lot in John's Gospel, and here you see it in Revelation 21, verse 6. These things must soon or must shortly take place because God has ordained these things to take place. That is why they must take place. And as I mentioned earlier as well, this notion of soon or shortly is seen five times in this passage. You see it in verse 6. You see it again in verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 10, where he says, the time is at hand. Uh, Verse 12, uh, I'm coming quickly. In verse 20, I'm coming quickly. Okay? (laughs) As I said earlier, right? God only needs to say something once for it to be to take for us to take note, right? If God says it five times and continues to repeat it, that's like underlining, bolding the text, italicizing the text, putting quotes around the text, putting arrows pointing to the text, all of this all these things to emphasize the point. And what's that point? I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. And do not let that cause you to doubt the fact that it was 2,000 years ago. Because that's what the skeptics will say. They'll say, where's your Lord? 
He's been saying this for 2,000 years. Where is your Lord? I thought he was coming quickly. But yeah, don't, don't let this idea of quickly or at hand or shortly and the fact that we are 2,000 years removed from this cause us to doubt. That's what the skeptic will say. That's what the unbeliever will say. But again, I mean, let's face it. Do, is God on our timetable? No, God is not on our timetable. Does God view time the same way we view time? No, God does not view time the same. God is outside of time, really, if you want to be technical about this. God does not exist in time. God sort of acts in time, but God is not subject to time. Time was, and I know this is getting kind of deep, but time was created, if you will, when creation was, was made, right? There was no time before creation. We use words like before the creation, but that really, in a sense, is kind of meaningless to say before the creation because before the creation was only God, and that was it, God existing in eternity. We all know the verse in 2 Peter, right? 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, where uh, you know, Peter says, a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. It doesn't mean that in God's time, one day equals 1,000 years. It's an expression to say, Time, as we measure time, because we are, we are bound in time, okay? We cannot see the beginning from the end. We, we only see a succession of moments in time, right? You know, we only know past, present, future. And, and, and for us, they necessarily flow in that direction. Past, present, future. God, as I said, is outside of time. To him, it's almost as if everything is one massive present moment, all right, and God can act in time. So for him, when, when Peter says a days is a thousand years and a thousand years is a days, it's basically saying this idea of a long time for us is not a long time for God. Okay? So this is from a divine perspective. When Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, it's from his timetable, from his perspective, from a divine perspective, not from our perspective. So don't let that throw us off. And then Jesus pronounces a blessing we see here in verse 7. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one. This is another one of the benedictions in uh, the book of Revelation. There's another one later um, in, I think it's verse 12, uh, verse 14, my apologies. But here he pronounces a blessing to the one who keeps or guards or observes the words of this prophecy. In other words, take note of what is being said here in this book to, to stand fast, to keep watch. Because, again, the Lord is coming from his perspective quickly. The time is at hand. These are the things which must shortly take place. Keep your place here and let's... I mentioned this in passing earlier today, but in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, I think I put 25, it should be 24. So Matthew, chapter 24. Now this is Jesus, his own telling of his return in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel. And... Um, He's already talked about the sign of the times. He's mentioned the great tribulation, the coming, his coming, 
And then he tells a couple of parables. He tells the parable of a fig tree, uh, which is when you see the fig tree beginning to bloom, you know the time is near. Okay? Um, so even though we don't know the day or the hour, we know that we're in the last days when certain signs of the times make themselves known. Those things that you see in verses 4 through 14, the, the wars and rumors of wars and so on and so forth. But then in verse 36 of 24, he says, while you may know that the time is at hand or that it is near, the day or the hour, obviously, no one knows. You don't know the exact time that Christ will return. The angels of heaven don't know, only my Father. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if you remember how Noah's story goes, right? God promises that he's going to destroy the earth with a flood. He tells Noah to build an ark. And as he's building the ark, other passages and Peter tell about how he was sort of like a prophet of righteousness during the time that he was building the ark. And so I can imagine conversations going like this. Noah, what are you doing? Well, I'm building a boat. It's like, well, what's a boat? Well, it's something that's going to float on water. Well, what's water? <laughs> what's going to rain? Well, what's rain? So, well, God is going to judge the world because you're all wicked. And it's like, ah, Noah, you're crazy, right? So they go on and they just continue doing what they're doing. And then as in the days of Noah, when the floods came, Noah went into the boat and the door was sealed and no one else could get in except Noah and his family who were protected in the ark. Jesus is saying it's going to happen on his return just like that. People are going to be... Think about it. Again, we just talked about it. Where's Jesus been? Right? He hasn't returned yet. He said he's coming soon. He's coming quickly. Where is he? So we're just going to continue living as we want to live. We're going to eat and drink and be merry. We're going to marry and give in marriage. And we're just going to live our lives because that's all that talk about God returning is foolish. Just as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, verse 38, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. So, I mean, like Noah's walking into the ark, <laughs> and everyone is still having a party outside in, in, the, you know, in the rest of the world. And did not know until the flood came. Oh, you mean that rain I was talking about. And took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, right, a thief comes in the night. That's Jesus' described, his return is described as a thief coming in the night. Well, I mean, if you knew what hour the thief was going to come, well, you would be awake watching for the thief so he wouldn't steal your goods, right? But if you don't know, then you either have to trust he's not coming to your house or you have to be awake all night. You have to be watchful. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Watch for you don't know when it's coming. Then he tells a parable in verses 45 through 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, 
and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him to his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think I made the reference to St. Elmo's Fire when I <laughs> referenced this parable earlier in the morning. I won't make the reference to St. Elmo's Fire again. But the point here of the story is that Jesus is saying, look, the wise servant is the one who is busy about the master's work while the master is away. Just because the master is not here doesn't mean that the, the servant can be lazy. The wise servant does what the master asks him to do and waits faithfully and watchfully for the master to return. The wicked servant says, All right, I've got time. I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to invite my friends over. And I'm going to beat the other slaves. And I'm going to take advantage of them. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want. Oh, the master's here. Oh, shoot. You know, what am I going to do now? You know, that's what happens. And then the master comes and punishes the wicked servant. All right, let's go back to Revelation 22. So the blessing on those, in verse 7, the blessing on those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book you are blessed if you are, if you are watching, keeping, guarding, observing the words, if you are paying attention to them, if you are allowing them to, to, to instruct you. Why? Because the Lord is coming quickly, and he will reward those. We'll see that in a moment. He will reward those who, who are faithful. And then John, when he hears and sees this, in verse 8, right, he falls down. He falls down to worship the angel, and of course, verse 9 says, don't do that. <laughs> he did this earlier in chapter 19, verse 10, when he got the vision of the, um, the fact of Babylon's fall. And he says, I fell down to worship. And then again, the angel says, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And I said then, and I'll say it again here, I, I, in a way, I don't blame John. I mean, I think if I'm getting these visions, I might be tempted to fall down and worship, you know, just not at the feet of an angel. That, you shouldn't do that. But, but, but John, I think, is just so overtaken with what's being presented to him that he falls down in worship. And, of course, then the angel rebukes him, don't do that. I am not one to worship. You need to worship God. I am just one of your fellow servants, the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. And then John is told not to seal this prophecy, verse 10. He said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is at hand. And if you remember when we were looking at the book of Daniel uh, last year, at the end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and verse 9, Daniel is told by the angel to seal up the prophecy. He's given a prophecy, he's given all these visions at the end of Daniel's, in the last six chapters of Daniel, and then he's told to seal up the prophecy. Why? Because it's not yet time for it. It's not yet time. John is told not to seal it. Why? Because the time is at hand. Right? We are in the last days. We are in the last days, and these words, even though they were written to seven churches back nearly 2,000 years ago, are still relevant for us today as well. These are words for us today as well. So do not seal them up. And then you get this interesting verse, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy 
still. The idea there is, yeah, I mean, the unrighteous, the unjust, the filthy, the wicked are, are locked in their wickedness unless the Lord does something in their hearts. And the ones who are righteous are righteous because the Lord has done something in their hearts, has applied the righteousness of Christ, and then they are preserved by the Holy Spirit. So the one who is unjust will remain to be unjust when the Lord returns. The one who is righteous will be righteous and holy when the Lord returns. Now we move on to verses 12 through 17. There's another benediction here in verse 14. And for the second time you see here in this passage, uh, Jesus speaks, assuming that the red letters are true. But I believe, at least in verse 12, it's pretty obvious this is Jesus. So Jesus speaks in verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. So he says it again. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So again, this, this, this mention of quickly, this mention of, 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 of near, nearness, uh, the time is at hand. Jesus is coming quickly. And again, it's a motivation for the faithful. Because again, if you consider the fact that you know, he's writing to the seven churches, primarily, right, those seven churches in, in chapters 2 and 3, you've got one church that you have is under persecution, heavy persecution. You've got several churches that are sort of in various stages of compromise, whether compromise from within or compromise from without. You've got one that is kind of locked in a kind of a, we're, we're the doctrinally pure one, but they've lost their love. You've got a faithful church, one that, that sees an open door and, and, and rushes to, to do the work of the Lord. You've got a lukewarm church that doesn't care about the Lord. You've got one that is practically dead and is told to wake up because you're dead. You need, you need, you need the, you know, the paddles, right? You know, the, the, the defibrillator to, to wake you up because you are in a state of deadness. So this idea that Jesus is coming quickly is, is motivation for those who are undergoing persecution to persevere, for those who are uh, tempted to compromise to, to back off, to those who are loveless to, to regain that first love, to those who are lukewarm to be hot or cold, to those who are dead to wake up. It's a motivation for the faithful. And Jesus is coming here with his reward. And the word there for reward is an interesting word. It, it, it's a word that basically means a payment for work, which don't, don't let that think that it's works righteousness. But the point is he comes to give everyone according to his work. Now we have to understand our works do not merit anything. Right? I want to be clear about that. Our works do not merit anything. Our works do not earn anything. Our works do not put God in our obligation. But God does graciously reward our works. Even our fumbling, bumbling, stumbling works. He rewards them because he is gracious. Not because he is indebted to us. It would be the same thing as if you were to be kind to your child who did something. You told your child, hey, could you pick up your toys? And the child's like, okay, daddy, I'll pick up my toys. And they kind of maybe pick up half of them and put them away. You know, you don't yell. It's like, you only picked up half the toys. How dare you? You're such a bad... No, you're like, 
thank you for helping me clean up the toys. And maybe you give your child a, a cookie or something or some, a sweet treat or something. The point is, your child isn't going to do exactly everything you want perfectly. The point is that you, you condescend to reward even their, their weak, you know, fumbling, little, puny efforts at trying to please you. You reward them. Jesus rewards our works not because our works are worthy of reward, but because in Him they are sanctified. In Christ, His blood not only sanctifies our souls, but His blood also sanctifies our works as well. So He comes to give His reward. And this, we've seen this other phrase before in 13, where He talks about how He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has said this um, in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 21, verse 6. He is, he is the beginning and end of everything. <laughs> All right? That's kind of what it means. I am the alpha point. I am the omega point. I am the first. I am the last. I am the beginning. I am the end of all of creation. All of this is for me. I am, I am the one in whom all of it is culminating in. He is the purpose of all of redemptive history. He is the beginning point of it. He is the end point of it. Jesus was there at the beginning. John 1, right? I am, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and He was there with God, and all things were created through Him, and all things will culminate in Him at the end of the age. And then you get the benediction in verse 14. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the holy city. But outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So you have this idea here that those who do the commandments are blessed and they get access. They get access to the holy city. They are allowed to enter into the gates of the city. They are allowed access and right to the tree of life. The rest... They are outside. They are excluded. They are not granted access to the tree of life. They are not allowed to come into the city. They are outside the city, outside of the holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. They are outside in the outer darkness, if you will, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's where they are. And we've seen hints of this before in chapter 2, verse 7 of Revelation. This is to the loveless church, Ephesus. At the end of that letter, Jesus writes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. I will give you access, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then earlier, in chapter 21, verse 27, But there shall, be, there shall by no means enter into the city, Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So those who do not do the commandments, they are excluded. Chapter 21, verse 8, same, same, same thing there in chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which uh, burns forever, which is the second death. So you've got this those who do the commandments. Now, again, this is not a works righteousness thing. We need to be clear about this. We are 
by faith law keepers. Okay? We are by faith law keepers because by faith we are granted the righteousness of Christ. So, in a sense, we have his righteousness. We are law keepers because when God looks at us, he looks at us and sees his son, Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly. So we who do his commandments, we who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we get the access to the tree of life. Those who are not, those who attempt to come into the city without the righteousness of Christ, like in the parable of the wedding feast, they are cast out. They are cast out of the city and denied access. And then Jesus, in verse 16, speaks for the third time in our passage. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. This kind of echoes a lot what you see at the very beginning of the book when, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, when we learn that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So if you remember the, the, you know, the transmission line there is God gave this revelation to Christ who gave it to an angel who then gave it to John. And here you see Jesus saying the same thing. I have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So again, this is the revelation of Christ, and he has sent this revelation by an angel. Angels, of course, are the servants of God. And he says that he is the root and the offspring of David. I want to look at a few passages in the Old Testament that speak to this. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 9. So here in this prophecy, this is the prophecy of that you get in verse 6 where he says, unto us a child is born. But in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Jesus Christ, who is this child that will be born to us, who is upon whom the government will be placed on his shoulders, is the one who will sit upon the throne of David over his kingdom. And if you flip just over to Isaiah 11, verse 1, there um, Isaiah prophesies that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This, of course, is speaking of Jesus. We know this. Jesus is a descendant of King David. Right? King, we're going to look at King David in our sermon in a couple of weeks. But Jesus is the promised son of David that was prophesied back in 2 Samuel. Now, there, were, there was a near fulfillment, right? Because that fulfillment was fulfilled in part by David's actual son, son, Solomon. And, and the promise that God would uh, never... Uh, leave the throne of David empty was true up to a point until the kings of Israel finally, or the kings of Judah finally, were so wicked that God had to cut that line off. But he was, it was restored, and Jesus, of course, is the final fulfillment of that son of David, which is why, as we saw in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, he is the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he is the son of David. Very important that he is the son of David because these prophecies that talk about the root of Jesse, the rod 
uh, of David and the offspring of David because they are fulfilled in Christ. You get it again in Jeremiah 23. It's a very similar language here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And then even in our own book of Revelation chapter 5, the throne room scene in chapter 5, where the Lamb comes to take the scroll at the end of chapter 4, we are wondering who will be able to take the scroll that is in the hand of the Ancient of Days. And you see here in chapter 5, verse 4, so John weeps because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So Jesus here is the root and offspring of David. David is the stump, and out of it grows the shoot that is Jesus Christ. And he is also the bright and morning star. There are passages we can look at. If you want, you could just listen. You don't need to turn to these. You can if you want. But Numbers chapter 24. If you remember earlier, I, I talked about how Balaam was hired by King Balak to curse Israel. But Balaam could only prophesy what God gave him to prophesy, and all he did was bless Israel. And in one of his oracles, I think it's, it's his fourth oracle, in chapter 24, verse 17 of the book of Numbers, Balaam says, I see him. If you have a New King James, it's capitalized, so the, the translators are assuming they're talking about Christ. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So the star, he is the bright and morning star. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78, which is Zechariah's prophecy of the Lord. In verse 78, though, uh, through the tender mercy of our God, which the day spring from on high has visited us. So the bright and morning star, the day spring. So Jesus is the root and offspring of David. He is the bright and morning star. And then you get in, right after that, you get this wonderful invitation in verse 17 of chapter 22. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Again, an invitation to any who recognize their need for Christ, any who recognize their thirst and hunger for righteousness, any who have the ears to hear, the Spirit is calling them, the bride, the church is calling them, anyone who hears is calling out to anyone who is, recognizes their thirst and they invite them to come and to drink, to come, just like in Isaiah 55, anyone who thirsts, let him come, anyone who hungers, let him come and eat and drink freely. The invitation, the invitation to those who desire to follow Christ, those who hear the Spirit calling in their hearts, those who recognize their thirst and hunger for righteousness, those who understand that they are sinners, that they cannot earn their righteousness, that they cannot 
find their own way to heaven, who, who need the Spirit to come to them, the invitation. And then you get warnings in verses 18 and 19. Now, there's some debate as to who is speaking here. Um, the translators seem to think it's John or maybe the angel because they don't put it in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. Some think it's Jesus speaking here in verse 18. Uh, either way, someone is testifying to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the prophecy of God, shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Whoever's saying this, let's say it's John, he is saying that no one should add or subtract to the words of the prophecy of this book. These are words that are uttered by Moses in Deuteronomy when he's getting ready to close the Pentateuch. In chapter 4, verse 2, do not add or subtract to the words of this book. Chapter 12, verse 32, do not add or subtract to the words of this book. Proverbs 30, verse 6, do not add to the words of this book. Sensing a theme here. <laughs> do not add or subtract to the words of God. That's what the world wants to do, right? All right? They don't want to take the Bible as it is. They want to add to it. Let's add to it. Let's add some things to it that make it a more palatable. Or, more than likely, let's take things out. Let's be like Thomas Jefferson and cut out everything I don't like in the Bible so that, so that I have a Bible that I like. Okay? Basically, what you've got there is you've got mankind standing in judgment over God and his word, which is exactly what sinful man wants to do. We want to stand in judgment over God and his word. So do not, the warning, do not add, do not subtract. Now, of course, this specifically applies to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation, in a sense, is the close of Revelation. It is the last final word from God, of inspired word from God, until Christ returns at the end of the age. But it also applies to the whole Bible because this is the last word from God. Not just Revelation, the whole Bible. Don't add to it, don't subtract from it. Plagues come upon the one who will add to his words. And anyone who subtracts that person's part from the book of life, depending on your translation, you might have the tree of life, right? You know, there's, that's a different textual tradition. The, the critical text has that. But the point is, is that it, the one who adds or subtracts to these words will be judged, is what it's saying here. And again, it's not like your, your name is in the book of life and then God will take it out, okay? Your, your name is not written in the book of life in pencil so God can erase it if he doesn't like you anymore, all right? The idea is just like your name was never in the book of life to begin with, and it's just a, it's a way of, of expressing this judgment. If you subtract from these words, God will subtract you from paradise, right? You will not be allowed in paradise. You will be... You will be barred. It's just like those who do not keep the commandments of the Lord. Do not add or subtract to the word of God. And then in verses 20 and 21, you get the final words of Christ. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. So it's kind of interesting because right here at the end, you've got you know, the last words of Christ in a sense. The last words of Christ to his church. 
inspired words, I should say, to his church. I mean, he is speaking to us through his word all the time. But these are the last words of Christ. Surely, again, this notion of quickly. And these are the final words in the Bible, too. And then John says, Amen. Let it be so. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And these final words of Christ are, again, another reminder that he is coming quickly. The time is at hand. The time is near. He is coming quickly. And then our response, as, as John's response, our response ought to be, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come and ransom captive Israel. In the time that remains, and I'll try to be quick with this, just some concluding remarks on the book of Revelation. Um, we began this study, as I said, two calendar years ago. <laughs> two, it was September of 2020, we started this. Okay, September of 2020. And in the very first lesson, when we were going over the introductory matters, I, I said then that Revelation is a mysterious, enigmatic, intimidating, and wonderful book. And I still believe that. It is a mysterious, enigmatic, intimidating, and wonderful book. And I hope uh, through our time in these 48 lessons or so, I've been able to help make Revelation at least a little more clear to you all. Uh, it's not just a book about the future. Okay? This is not something that, again, it's not something that, okay, Revelation, I'm going to lock it up and put it away because, well, that's all talking about something way down the road and I don't have to worry about it today. It is a book for now. Jesus wrote this book, yes, to seven churches, letters addressed to seven churches in the first century, but those churches are reflective of the church of all ages. They're every... Every age has had a church like Ephesus, a church like Sardis, a church like Philadelphia, a church like Laodicea, so on and so forth. Those churches are representative of the church throughout all the ages. Okay? Some even believe that those churches represent periods of church history. That, you know, we're, we're, we're in the, the, the Philadelphia or the Laodicea age now, the, the lukewarm church age, however you want to look at it. This book is not just something for the future. It is a book for all time. Every church in every generation since the Lord rose to go to be with the Father has lived in light of the truth that Christ is coming quickly. That was something that was true 2,000 years ago. It is true now. Christ is coming quickly. Again, he's coming on his own time, on his own terms, not how we understand quickly. And we can't make him come any faster, okay? There's nothing we can do that, well, if we do certain things, then that'll trigger the end. No, that's not how we look at things here. We are in the last days and have been ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And we live in light of eschatology, if you will. Uh, I remember you were commenting on my coffee mug the other day. I have a coffee mug that says... Uh, eschatology precedes soteriology. And it's like, what, are the, what does that mean? The idea of paradise, of, of the end times, of the new creation, that precedes the idea of salvation. Why? Because 
Paradise was held out to Adam in the garden, and he failed to, to achieve it. So because of that, then the plan of redemption kicks in, and then paradise is restored at the end. So this idea, we've always lived in light of the end times. Our lives are always in light of the end times. Not in the sense that we have to be like the Thessalonians, right? Paul writes to them because they were thinking that not just Christ was coming quickly, but like Christ was coming tomorrow. That was what was going on in Thessalonica. So that they were, in a sense, kind of, you had some of them that sort of like quit their jobs and were like, we're going to wait here for the Lord to return. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, like, if someone will not work, that person shall not eat. In other words, yes, Christ is coming quickly, but as we saw in some of these warning passages, we need to be busy about the work of the Lord. We need to be good servants, working while our master is away. But we do live in light of the end times. And while there, you can have differences of opinions on how to interpret the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the millennia, all of that, one thing is crystal clear about Revelation, and that is Christ has won the victory. Christ has won the victory. His return will bring a close to this present evil age. It's as, as, remember what Jesus said, these are sure and true words, faithful and true words. That, that picture of Jesus returning on the white horse to conquer his enemies and our enemies is true. It is faithful and true. That, in fact, that's what's written on his thigh. Is he is faithful and true. He will come and defeat our enemies. He won the victory at the cross, and he will come and bring the fullness and the consummation at the end of this age. So this truth then fuels, I think it should fuel, our Christian living as we recognize and engage in the spiritual warfare that is going on, as we stand fast uh, against persecution, as we um, stand fast from persecution against the beast, right? That's what the idea of the beast is. He is the one who persecutes the church. You've got the false prophet who tries to get the church to compromise, tries to get the church to to worship the beast. So we have to stand fast against all that. We have to stand fast against persecution. And we have to stand fast against compromise. Those are the two ways that we, as a church, can fail. We can either, we can either succumb to the persecution and give in to that, or we can succumb to the lures and enticements of the world and forget our true love, Jesus Christ. So this idea that Christ has won the victory ought to fuel are living as we stand fast against persecutions from without and compromise from within. Another thing Revelation does is it gives us a glimpse, sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse, if you will, of the warfare, the spiritual warfare that is going on. It, it is giving us spiritual truths, the spiritual truth that lies behind the physical or earthly realities we see and experience here. So in this world, we see, all right, we see our government doing this. We see other governments doing that. The behind-the-scenes spiritual truth of that is that's the beast working. That is the beast working. We see, we see things going by the name church, and they're compromising here. They're, they're compromising on LGBTQ, or they're compromising on biblical inerrancy or whatever. That's the false prophet working behind the scenes to get the church to compromise. The book of Revelation shows us that this is a spiritual warfare, right? This is a spiritual warfare going on, 
and we have to stand fast against that. But again, our Savior is victorious. Jesus won the victory. And then the church is preserved, right? Revelation 7, we are marked out. We are sealed by Him. We are preserved against the dangers of this world, and we are promised then the blessings of the world to come in Him. I want to close our study tonight with the words of Revelation 5. Because I titled this series, in case you're curious, The Lamb Upon His Throne. And in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 8, these are the words I want to leave you with. Now when he, that is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who had been slain, the, the, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Jesse, sorry, tribe of Judah, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You, O Lord, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a glorious time we've had through the book of Revelation. And we started off this evening by saying, Come, Lord Jesus, and we end this evening by saying, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to preserve your church in her warfare against the dark forces of this world. Help us to realize, Lord, that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and authorities and rulers of this age against Satan and his minions, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us, Lord, to be lights in this world, to be witnesses, to bring forth the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in need of it. And Lord, we pray for you to come quickly. Come quickly. Oh, Lord, Come. And bring your church home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.